Well, good evening, and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Good to be here on this Wednesday evening to study God's Word together and to hear from Him. We are this evening in the book of Second Chronicles and in chapter 28, so you can turn there. Second Chronicles 28. We'll be looking at this chapter this evening. And as we get into this portion of Scripture, we've just studied about several kings, and those kings were Joash and Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, and basically good men with flaws, some with severe flaws, some that ended their lives in a way where they really, really experienced moral failure, spiritual failure. However, Jotham, the last of these kings, did not. He was a good king. And you would think that his son Ahaz would be at least a decent human being. Unfortunately, Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings in the kingdom of Judah. One of the most wicked. There there may be one or two that were more so, but I, I think he's definitely in the running for the gold medal for the worst king of Judah. And you, you have a hard time understanding that because you look at a king like Jotham who was just such a good leader and even brought his son in early to instruct him and mentor him and have him king uh, alongside as a co-regent. And, and still, the, the man didn't just go so far in the wrong direction. He, he practically told Satan to take a vacation, filling in for him. And I have a hard time understanding that. How is it that such a good man could have such a wicked son? I think a lot of Christian parents don't really want to embrace this truth. But that all wicked people don't necessarily have had wicked parents. They haven't had wicked parents. And not all good parents have great kids who grow up to serve the Lord. That, that is a very difficult reality that I think a lot of people... You know, we want to check the box. We want to say, well, I send my kids to Sunday school, to Christian school, to VBS, Calvary Kids on Wednesday night. (laughs) And I did everything I was supposed to. I prayed for my kids, and I instructed them in the Lord. I prayed with them to receive the Lord. They were baptized, confirmed, whatever else you can do to a kid to anoint them with the Holy Spirit. And, And yet, my kid just totally doesn't want anything to do with God. And you can understand that to a degree, because kids do have to make their own choices. But when the choice is that they not only want to have nothing to do with God, but they actually want to embrace Satan and his ways, how do you explain that? I don't know that you can explain it. You can accept that it happens, and that God is in control of all things. You, You can accept the fact that God pleads with the heart of every human being, every child, And yet every child, every human being, every person who's ever been born has a choice to make. Ahaz made his choice, and it wasn't a good choice. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And may this evening just, may you use tonight to encourage us through such a really discouraging account of a king. May we somehow be encouraged from your word, if nothing else, to know the truth that we have to Send our hearts to you and serve you. And if we don't, we're lost. We're more lost than lost. Lord God, we need you. And that even as disciples, if we don't continue to cultivate that relationship with you, we can become extremely corrupt and wicked in our hearts. So as we study your word this evening, encourage us to grow closer to you, to live our lives for you. For we ask these things, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives and through our lives. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's first look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 28 in Second Chronicles. We read that Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which was that northern kingdom, which there were no good kings. Israel only had wicked kings. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals, which were the local gods, the local deities, idols, false gods that were worshiped by the people. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And he ordered sacrifices, or excuse me, he offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. He not only rejected God, he embraced Satan. He not only rejected a righteous life, he embraced wickedness. There are some people that are basically decent human beings that don't serve God. I think we would all agree. Many times Christian kids will grow up and they really don't surrender their hearts to God, but they're not terrible people. You love them. You can still look at their life and be proud of them and find things about them to celebrate. Doesn't mean they're surrendered to God. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't doesn't mean that they're disciples of Christ or even Christians but they're decent human beings, and though you would like for them to be a little bit more committed, certainly committed to Christ, and surrendered to him as a disciple, you accept the fact that hopefully all of the foundation that you've laid in that child's life will come back to that person as they get older, and as that child gets older, they'll grow into the person that you pray that they'll be. But how do you embrace and accept the truth that someone would go so far in the opposite direction? Ahaz was a man like this. Now, sometimes it's the result of trauma. Sometimes it's the result of someone experiencing some awful thing in their lives that causes a a child raised in a godly home to go the opposite direction. That's true. But sometimes it's just bad choices. I can tell you, I, I was raised in a pretty good home. I made some terrible choices in my teenage years. I was thinking about how I became a Christian when I was 21. I became a Christian at a very young age. And how even at the age of 14 or 15 years old, I was still going to church every week. I was an altar boy. I was still kind of going through the motions of how I was raised, going to church, respecting God. But, you know, I reached a point in my mid-teens where I just decided that I wanted to do things that were wicked. And for a long time, I did them sort of without anybody knowing Then ultimately, when I became a young adult, about 18, 19 years old, then I started to be more open about my sin and the things that I would do. And by the time I was 20, 21, I was fairly bankrupt spiritually. And fortunately, I heard the gospel and praise God responded by giving my life to Jesus Christ. So you might say I had, as a a young person, I might have had five or six kind of tough years. That's great, actually, by today's standards. If you have a kid that gets into their mid-teens and experiments a little bit or goes through some difficult things and made some tough choices or bad choices, but then by the time they're in their early 20s, makes a decision for Christ, you celebrate. 
as a parent because almost everyone has to go through a time of testing and decision. Of course, we would all rather our children walked on water, grew up, sailed through their teens, were the model of Christianity until in their early 20s they became Christian young adults, maybe missionaries or pastors, you know. But let's be realistic. Everyone has to make their choices. Ahaz must have made a choice early on to do things that were wicked for wicked and selfish reasons. A lot of it comes down to selfishness, as we'll see. The things he did, the idolatry he practiced, it was, it was filled with all kinds of debauchery and wickedness and lust and all the kinds of things that feed the flesh. And if you choose to feed the flesh in any way, shape, or form, believe me, you'll be hungry for a long time. It's very hard to, to deny yourself in those appetites, especially if you cultivate them early in life. You develop habits, bad habits, addictions, behaviors that are very difficult to break. I suspect that's what happened to this man. He inherited the kingdom of Judah from his father, Jotham, which we discussed last week. I mean, he became a third co-regent in the eighth year of his father's reign. That is, you know, his grandfather was still alive. His father was alive, and he came in and started getting involved as a prince, if you will, or a, a co-regent. He, he was involved in the kingdom. He became second co-regent when his grandfather Uzziah died in the 12th year of his father's reign. So even after his grandfather died, he then became the second king, and he, he worked alongside of his father, a good man. And then he became ruling monarch when his father retired. His father didn't even leave the kingdom when he died. He left four years before he died in the 16th year of his reign. And when his father died in the 20th year, his 20th year as king, although he was no longer reigning as king because he had retired, this man Ahaz became the sole monarch. And that's when things went bad. We talked last week about the importance of accountability. This man had accountability from his grandfather to his father, especially his father, especially his father. And that seemed to be okay. And I suspect his father, when he retired and handed the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, you know, the throne to his son, figured that during those four years he would grow. And ultimately, when Jotham died, he was probably fairly confident that this king would continue to follow the example that he had given him. Sadly, it seems as soon as this king had died, this, this father, he went completely out of control. In fact, we're told by the way, his name, interestingly enough, Ahaz, really means one that takes. One that takes. And it's interesting that he was named this. He, he could have taken advice. He could have taken that good example. But instead, he took things for himself. He reigned as king for 16 years after his father's retirement. As I said, he was about 20 when he became the ruling monarch. So here he is, a 20-year-old. And I find it interesting because you know, when you're at that age of 20, 21, you really do need to make a decision. I shared with you already, I made my decision for Christ about that time. But I know some of my friends who didn't. Some of my family members who didn't. And they, they went through life after that point. And, you know, the next 10 years were difficult years for them. Damaging years, traumatic years, 10, 20 years of, of living in a certain way that really just brings destruction into your life. And it's sad. He was only 12 when he became the third co-regent. So at 12 years old, you know, they bring him in. He's the third king to his father and grandfather. And I'm sure everyone had high hopes for him. But at 12 years old, kids don't, well, not only don't they know a lot, they don't know who they are. 
We recognize, especially in the Jewish culture they do, they recognize 12 and 13-year-olds as being young men, young men and women. That's right, but let's be honest, at that point they haven't been tested yet. And so he becomes the third co-regent. He's about 16 when he becomes the second co-regent. So he's a little bit older and he's at that age where he's still under accountability. He can't just do what he wants because his father's around. And then at 24 years old, when he becomes the sole monarch after his father died. I suspect he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing all along. His father dies, and now the cuffs are off. Now there's no accountability. He's the king, and he can do whatever he wants. And every one of our children, every one of those that we love, will reach a point where they can do whatever they want. Technically or legally, I guess it's at 18, right? They could leave and do whatever they want. You might be able to say, well, not under my roof, but at the end of the day... It's kind of hard to watch them 24-7. And I don't mean to freak parents out. I'm just saying you got to understand that every person gets to make choices for or against God. Everyone. You, me, all of us. Your children, your grandchildren, everyone. You hope they make the right choice. You pray they make the right choice. You give them the right choice and tell them what it is. Show them by your life. But at the end of the day, they can certainly make the wrong choice. And so his relationship with the Lord was fairly non-existent. I don't know if he was playing the game all along. Maybe, probably. But he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the example of his forefather, David. The gold standard of being a king in Judah was David, who had served the Lord wholeheartedly, even though he had sinned. He was a guilty sinner. He had committed adultery, had a man murdered, done all sorts of wicked things. But he had a heart for God, and so he repented. And he had a heart to praise and worship the Lord. He wrote many of the Psalms. So David was a man that failed, but ultimately a man after God's own heart. We, we pray that all those young people we know, when they fail, not if they fail, when they fail, they repent and still have a heart for God. That's about the best you can hope for, right? That when they make those mistakes, when they make those bad choices, when they fail to be the kind of people you pray that they would be, that they will actually repent and draw nearer to God. That, that's, that's where I ended up, thank, thankfully. I had a great foundation, but it wasn't a perfect foundation, and it made a lot of bad decisions along the way. But ultimately, I'm here. Thank God. Praise God. I give him all the glory. So that's what you're really hoping for. Uh, hoping that they walk on water and never make a mistake, is you're, you're, you're going to be disappointed. You probably figured that out already, probably. If they're toddlers, you know they make mistakes. They, they sin. They, they, they start sinning pretty early on. Right about the time they, they learn that first word, mine, the selfishness just sort of comes out. Well, he didn't follow. This man didn't follow the example of his father, Jotham. We talked about that last week. He was fully devoted to the Lord as God as well. Maybe not like David, but close. And he forsook the God of his ancestors, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, the kings of Judah. He he came from a good line of kings that had been fairly good and decent kings for decades. And now, not learning from the example of their terrible misfortunes, he makes mistakes that were far worse than any of his ancestors. He was the first king in five generations to walk away from the Lord this early in his reign. And that means his heart never really belonged to God. Okay? Unlike his forefathers, who their hearts belonged to God, but then they chose to rebel against God and reject God, this man never really belonged to God at all. He was strongly influenced by the example of the wicked kings of Israel. And sometimes when there's a fascination with wickedness, it just gets the heart of a person, and, and they give their heart to that wickedness. 
He followed the detestable ways of the Canaanites, not just the Israelites, not just those in the northern kingdom who were idolaters. He followed the terrible, detestable ways of the Canaanites. They worshipped the Baals through idolatry. That's what he did. And to make matters even worse, he worshipped the god Molech, and you would worship the god Molech by sacrificing your child in the fire. They would kill their own children. I mean, that would never happen today, right? In a civilized society, we would never kill our own children, right? That's sarcasm. Because now we don't even wait for them to be born. We butcher them in the womb. We call it health care. Not us, but the world we live in. So they let the child be born, and then they killed it. And there's some people that advocate for that. I mean, basically, partial birth abortion is that. When a child is aborted in the womb, when that child could be viable outside the womb, that's exactly what you're doing. But even when you take the life of a child who's in the womb, who can't survive out of the womb, you are killing that child before it has a chance to survive. It's murder. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's not health care. It's murder. Well, this is what he did. Now, why would they do this? Well, they had what they called unwanted children. Unwanted children. They discarded their unwanted children. They did so by killing them as soon as they were born. Children cost money. Children required resources. And if you didn't want those children, you would just kill them. It's hard to believe that here we are in a modern, what's supposed to be civilized world, embracing the brutality of abortion. But these infants in this time were placed in the arms of a molten image in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. They would, they, they would burn their children in the fire. How horrible. How horrible. And he practiced this. And he practiced idolatry at the high places within the kingdom of Judah. He, if there was something evil, he did it. You know some of these people in Hollywood or in the music industry or in politics? <laughs> who it seems that whenever they have a choice to do what's right or do the absolute wrong thing, they always choose the wrong thing. The more wicked it is, that's what they're for. It breaks my heart. I see people screaming with signs, clamoring for the right to butcher their children in the womb. I mean, think about this. Ahaz had given himself over to this type of thinking, the way our culture today has given itself over to this type of thinking. Now, why would they have unwanted children? Well, they had unwanted children because they were having unprotected sex. That is, they, they were engaged in all types of uh, idolatrous practices that included lascivious or lustful practices, perverse practices, And the result of that behavior was children that you didn't want. Again, doesn't sound all that different than the world we live in today. And so rather than deal with that, they just killed their children. They used it as a form of birth control. So don't tell me the Bible doesn't at least address the issue of the value of life, because it does quite a bit. And as it relates to newborns at at the very minimum... I mean, these children were dead in the womb even though they weren't born yet because as soon as they were born, they were already planning to kill them. Well, Ahaz, a king of Judah, a man who came from a godly family, a godly kingdom, embraced this and burned his own children in the fire. This is about as bad as it gets. Well, we read in verses 5 through 19. Actually, let's just read... 
5 through 15. There's so much here. God got involved. And I want to assure you that when people embrace wickedness, God gets involved in their lives in two ways. First of all, they suffer the consequences of their sin, which is God's mercy. Because when you suffer the consequences of sin, that's God's way of showing you what you're doing hurts you. It's bad for you. God hates sin. Why does God hate sin? Because it hurts us. Oh, God doesn't want me to have fun. No, God wants you to have fun. God wants you to to have a good life and filled with peace and joy and, and all the good things that life can bring, prosperity and success. But wait a minute. Sin will prevent those things in your life. And so God hates sin because it hurts us. So we read, again, in uh, verses 5 through 15. Let's just read that much for now. Therefore, so this is the result. He lives this way, totally, totally, I want to say a lost cause, but the other reason that God does this is so that you'll repent and give your heart to God. Because that sometimes happens in the lives of wicked people, right? They're very wicked. They have a great testimony when they share a church because they were so wicked. And then they suffer the consequences of their sins and they gave their hearts to God. And then we applaud that and we praise God that they repented. So God has a twofold working here. The consequences are designed to make you see the, the folly of your ways, but also to bring you to repentance. And by bringing you to repentance, save your soul. But there's another aspect of why God gets involved, and that is judgment must come. You know, I certainly pray for those in our nation who are embracing wickedness on every level. I pray that they would recognize that wickedness will destroy them, not only in this life, but in the next, and repent and give their lives to Christ. I certainly do. But I also pray that if if they're not going to, and if they're just going to continue to inflict damage and destruction on themselves and their family, May God bring judgment in their lives. Maybe it'll snap them out of it, or at a minimum, bring judgment. Just bring judgment. That's up to God. That's not up to me. It's not up to you. We read, therefore, the Lord, his God. Now, that's interesting, because he certainly didn't serve God, but God was still the God of this nation and of his family, and he had grown up serving God, and he, and he was a Jew. He was a, 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 of the tribe of Judah. It says, therefore, the Lord has God handed him over to the king of Aram, that's Syria. And the Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel. We've talked about the kingdom of Israel to the north. They were wicked as well. Who inflicted heavy casualties on him. And one day, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, he was the king of Israel, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Masaiah, the king's son, and Azarachim, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. The Israelites took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters, and they also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. But just to show you that God doesn't just destroy the wicked, because if he did, Washington would be empty. Not just the state of Washington. Washington, D.C., both very wicked places, unfortunately, at least parts of Washington, the state. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria, and he said to them, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. 
And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves, but aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. And then some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, son of Jehonahan, and Barakiah, son of Meshulamoth, and Jezekiah, son of Shalom, and Amasa, son of Hadai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So they understood that they were guilty, and they didn't want to be judged either. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly and the men designated by name took the prisoners and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked and they provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink and healing balm. And all those who were weak, they put on donkeys. And so they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. You know, these wicked people from Israel responded to the word of the Lord through Oded. They were wicked, but they were righteous enough to recognize that they were doing wrong. And they repented and made restitution. That's more than you can say of the wicked people of Judah, and especially the king. See, sometimes wicked people do more righteously than supposedly righteous people who are wicked. It's just, it, it's just amazing to me. So what the Lord did is he raised up a man, Pekah, who was king of Israel. He attacked the city of Jerusalem. And he did it with the help of this king, Rezin, who is the king of Syria, or Aram. Now, 2 Kings chapter 16 gives us a little bit more information. What we do know is that Israel may have hoped, that is the northern kingdom, their enemies, may have hoped to force Judah, the southern kingdom, of which Ahaz was the king, to join in the rebellion against another power, an empire named Assyria. I shared with you last week that in this part of the world there were two parties or two policies, pro-Assyria, anti-Assyria. Well, Ahaz was pro-Assyria. So you're going to start to see that he sides with this empire, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, or Aram, were anti-Assyria. And so was, so was Uzziah. So there are these political viewpoints and parties and it drives their foreign policy, not surprisingly, right? So this man was pro-Assyria. So the anti-Assyrian kingdoms of Israel and, and Aram came against him because what they're afraid of is their enemy Assyria to the north and their enemy Judah to the south will ally and attack them from both sides. So their thinking is, let's get rid of Judah. And that way, either they can join us or at least they won't be a threat when we're attacked by Assyria. So it isn't personal, it's political. And they really want to destroy Judah, but I think if you read in 2 Kings, it seems that they approached them and said, join with us against Assyria, but remember Ahaz is of the pro-Assyrian party, so he won't do it. And God uses this to bring judgment on Ahaz and the people of Judah. And so the Lord allowed this to happen. And what we know from 2 Kings 16 is Syria, or Aram, defeated Judah, and they recovered a place called Eloth, or Eloth, for the Edomites, another enemy to their southeast. And they gave it back to them. And what that effectively did, it ended Judah's ability to trade in the south, and now they no longer had that income. So they're, they're weakening them from every side along their borders. 
And the Lord handed Judah over to Aram and Israel because, we're told in verses 5 through 8, because they had rejected him. I believe that we're suffering in our nation today simply because as, as leaders of our nation, because not everyone's rejected God, I think it's fair to say probably more than half the people in this country haven't rejected God. I don't know for sure, but a lot of people haven't. But our leaders have, as a result, we're being judged. That is, God is allowing us to suffer the consequences of sin. Because we as a nation and our policies and our laws and in our, our leaders are rejecting him, we are experiencing what Judah experienced. We're being handed over to our enemies piece by piece. Well, the Arameans defeated them. They took many prisoners. The Israelites decimated them. They killed 120,000 and took 200,000 prisoners, and, and they took a lot of plunder. But the Lord intervened, and you know, this is what we're praying for in our own nation, for God to get involved and intervene, maybe through elections, maybe, maybe through discovery of evidence of corruption, whatever it takes to get the bums out of office. In our nation, we're fortunate enough that we have elections and we have courts and we can hold people accountable to a certain degree, regardless of whether the news covers it or not. There's so much corruption in our current leaders. I pray every day that it would be exposed. Just the truth. Just the truth, because the truth will set us free. Their being exposed for who they really are could possibly save our nation. So my first prayer is, Lord, let the truth be known. There's certainly nothing wrong with praying that, right? And then I follow that up with, and let us be given or allowed to vote for leaders who will not reject God, but respect and reverence God and his word. So those would be two things I pray for quite a bit. So the Lord intervened, though, and I do believe God will intervene, but, but God intervened here. He did. Uh, mercifully intervened. He, he sent this prophet, Oded, to deliver those who had been taken prisoner by warning the people of Israel not to do this wicked thing to their brothers. And Israel showed grace to the people of Judah as the Lord commanded. You've got to give them credit. They responded to the word of the Lord. It didn't, see, didn't seem that Ahaz did, but they did. Well, then we read in verse 16, remember now, you've got Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, or Aram, to the north, attacking Judah to the south and decimating them. I already shared with you that Ahaz, the king of Judah, who's wicked, is pro-Assyrian. That makes sense because Assyria was a wicked empire, brutal, vicious group of people. And maybe even he was influenced by that empire to do some of the things he did. I don't know, but I know this. He's pro-Assyria, so what do you think is going to happen next? You know, they're allies, so, so he's been destroyed, but now Assyria is going to get involved and attack their enemies. Well, ultimately, Assyria did destroy this alliance, and they did so in response to a request from Judah. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, but I'm just going to cover it for you. Now look at verse 16. It tells us, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Well, of course he did. He's pro-Assyrian. That's why he wouldn't go to war against Assyria. And that's why he was attacked by Israel and Aram, or Syria. So it all makes sense politically, but Assyria gets involved. And Ahaz, what he does, he actually, and again, you have to read Second Kings to get some of this, but he surrenders the sovereignty of the kingdom of Judah to the Assyrian Empire. He has no choice if he wants to continue to remain pro-Assyrian and continue to exist. So he surrenders sovereignty to Assyria. 
He had wisely chosen not to join the rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah's book in chapter 7 and 8, Isaiah the prophet had instructed him to cry out to the Lord in repentance. He said, don't go to Assyria, cry out to God. So what did he do? He rejected God and cried out to Assyria. And it, gets, it goes from bad to worse. And it always does if you don't cry out to God. So what are we hoping to do right now? It's kind of interesting. We have a president who's going over to the Middle East to ask the Saudis for help. It's interesting. I thought they were wicked. All things change, you know. Think about the world we live in. Even history isn't sure. It keeps changing. People write it how they want it to be. When we look to others... As a nation, I'm not talking about individuals, but as a nation, as a culture, when we look to others and not to God, we reject God and look to others, what do you think is going to happen? Well, what happened here? You end up surrendering your sovereignty. You end up worse off than you began. And Isaiah told them not to do it. He did it. See, he had been a political ally of Assyria, but now he reduced Judah to a vassal state. That is, they were just sort of ruled over by Assyria, swallowed up by the empire. And he paid tribute to the king of Assyria to save him from his enemies. And the king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and putting Rezin, the king of Syria, to death. So now it's kind of like borrowing money from the mob. You don't want to do that. First of all, the interest rates are ridiculous. Secondly, they own you now. So now he surrendered by not giving his heart to God, by rejecting God and not repenting and looking to help from this wicked empire. He sold his soul and the soul of the nation. In fact, something that's really important to remember, his grandfather Uzziah had defeated the emperor of Assyria nine years earlier. Just nine years earlier, his grandfather marched out and defeated Assyria with God's help. Now he surrenders that nation, his nation, to Assyria. These people, by the way, would ultimately destroy uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Isaiah warned them, and of course it happened. Then Assyria was taken by Babylon, and then Babylon destroyed Judah, but that's going ahead several hundred years. Anyway, this event marked the beginning of Assyrian dominance in the Middle East. Now they pretty much ran the show, and they were wicked, wicked people. Well, the Lord then handed Judah over to Edom and Philistia because they rejected him. Other enemies. So, you know, Okay, so they dealt with the enemies to the north. Now the enemies to their east and west decide to attack them. See, what you're seeing in our nation today is our enemies are getting the upper hand against us. Why is that? People will say, oh, we got weak leadership. Yes, we have weak leadership, but it's more that we have ungodly leadership than it is weak leadership. Because a very uncapable person can cry out to God for help and find it. A person that's in over their head can say, we need to cry out to God. I don't know what to do to stop inflation and gas prices. I don't know what to do to deal with the pandemic. I don't know what to do. But you know what God does? Let's cry out to God. haven't heard a lot of that over the last two years. Maybe things have to get worse. I hope not. In verses 17 through 19, we read this. The Edomites had again come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners. So now they're being attacked from the east. While the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev of Judah, that's in the south and to their west, they captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, and Gedaroth, as well as Soko, Timnah, and Gimzo, 
with their surrounding villages. And the Lord had humbled Judah because, and we're told why, because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for, and there when it says Israel, he's speaking of the nation of Judah, obviously, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. So the reason I pray for judgment against leaders who are unfaithful to the Lord is so that they'll repent and or get out of the way so we can get leaders who will serve God. It's not because I'm bloodthirsty. You catch me on a bad day, maybe, but the truth is my prayers are based in the word of God, which says, let that leader be judged by God so that they'll be humbled and repent. That's what God does. Or be destroyed and replaced with godly men and women. So I think it's okay to pray that way. I think that's how God would have us to pray. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if you don't think that God gets involved in a, in a, in a very strong way, read Revelation 19 this evening. And you'll see what happens in the end when those who refuse to repent are destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, the Edomites attacked them, took many prisoners. The Philistines attacked them, captured territory. This nation is in decline. This nation is being destroyed. But will it be destroyed? Well, we'll see. It doesn't. The next king is a good king. See, God will do his work in his way according to his time. So tough times are God's sovereignty, God working out his perfect will in the lives of people who live in a nation that has rejected him. So I'm not idealistic, but I'm realistic. God is real. God will really work in our lives if we pray and call out to him. I believe he will. So what Ahaz does is pledges his loyalty to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria at this time. And we read in verses 20 through 25. I think I want to take, uh, yeah, 20 through 25. In chapter 28, we read, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. I, I, I'm not a prophet, I'm not pretending to be, but when we look to anyone other than God, we get trouble instead of help. And when we look to God, we get help in our time of trouble. Well, look at that. He gave him trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. So now he decides to worship the gods of the Assyrians, his enemy, really, who had defeated him, for he thought, this is his thinking, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. Now this is, let's back up a minute. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. That's the Syrians, okay? They were defeated by the Assyrians. It gets a little confusing. Syrians, Assyrians. And he offers sacrifices to the gods of the Syrians, of Aram, Damascus. Why would he worship gods that couldn't protect their own people against the Assyrians? This man has rejected God. He's not thinking straight. And when you reject God and refuse to repent, everything you do is the exact opposite of what you should do. I've heard people say that the Costanza, the George Costanza rule, where you're doing everything wrong. So if you want to succeed, just do everything the opposite of what you would do. They've suggested that our president follow that advice. 
This man is doing the exact wrong thing over and over again, offering sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. Of course, they had defeated him, but of course, Assyria had defeated them. For he thought, since the gods of the king of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But notice, they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. What a fool. Ahaz gathered together in verse 24, the furnishings from the temple of God. He took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. This guy is about the worst human being we've ever talked about. He's right up there with Judas Iscariot. I mean, this is a bad guy. And what happened? What we know from 2 Kings chapter 16 is he actually traveled to the conquered city of Damascus to bow his knee in submission to Tiglath Peleser, the emperor of Assyria, because he had conquered Aram at that point. See, he's looking for Assyria to help, but he receives trouble in head and unnecessarily forfeits the resources of his kingdom to Assyria. It's amazing because we live in a world today where our leaders are sacrificing our resources for this thing they call climate change, this global way of thinking. It's, it's almost an Assyrian empire. It's this idea that, oh, yeah, we all got to come together and, you know, waste a lot of money trying to change something we couldn't possibly change anyway. Where does all that money go? Oh, I'm sure it goes into certain people's pockets. Yeah, they're changing the climate. For all the money they spend, all the things they've done, has anything changed? Climate does change. By the way, God's in control of the climate. It, it, it's the biggest lie. It's almost as big as the lie of evolution. It, it, it's, it's such a lie, and yet people believe the lie because God gives them over to a reprobate mind. And it's amazing. You know, we see our leaders bowing the knee to this global way of thinking that's supposed to save the planet. I, you look at God's word, you can apply it to our circumstances today. Thank God he's coming again. Amen. These people would destroy us all if they were given the chance. So he travels there. He forfeits the resources. He commissions an altar to replace the brazen altar of the Lord, according to 2 Kings 16. He appoints himself a priest to offer sacrifices to false gods. As I said, you need to look at this in 2 Kings 16. He discards the brazen altar of the Lord in favor of his own altar and takes the sacrifices that belong to the Lord and desecrates the Lord's temple. He replaces the upper gate, which Jotham, his father, had built, and honored the emperor above God. So I encourage you, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 16 this, this week, this evening. You'll get some more information here. I'm just sort of summarizing it for you. He abandons the Lord when the kingdom of Judah needed him the most. See, we're abandoning God as a nation at a time where we need him the most. He served the false and useless gods of the Aramaeans, the Syrians, and abandoned the temple of the Lord and worshipped at idolatrous altars. This guy just simply couldn't get any worse. And then we're told, mercifully, we don't have to endure much more of this guy's failures, but in verse 26, the other events of his reign and all his ways from beginning to end are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. Now that's what I've been sharing with you. The book of 2 Kings, and specifically chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. Now, there's the book of the annals of the kings of Judah. That's included in First and Second Chronicles. But we also have Second Kings, First uh, and Second Kings, which, which document even more information about this guy. But Ahaz died, having brought about the downfall of Judah and all 
of the people of Israel. And, you know, in verse 27, we read that Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. That is, he wasn't given an honorable burial. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, we know Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. What does that tell you? It's never too late for a nation to repent and be saved by God. I got to tell you, I have a little bit of a pet peeve with Christians who are declaring that the end is coming. Like, you know, they're out there with the sandwich board. United States is done. It's never going to come back. It can't come back. We're not even this bad. We're bad. But it's not that bad. Not yet. We've seen it before. I hope and pray we'll see it again. Your hope has to be in Christ. God can, through good leaders, good and godly leaders, restore our nation. And that's my prayer, that he would. This man actually reigned as king for about a total of 24 years. See, he reigned, as I've shared, as co-regent with his father, Jotham, for eight. That was before his father retired. Then he, four years as co-regent with both his grandfather and his father, and then also four years with just his father. So when he was accountable, he couldn't really go crazy. But as soon as he had the opportunity, he did. We know that he reigned as king for 16 years after his father's retirement. So the first four years, he was ruling monarch, and then his father died. But then, for three years, he was the sole monarch, and then he made his son Hezekiah co-regent. See, they practiced this, this practice of, uh, I'm the king, but I, I need to have my son sort of as the crown prince. I need to have him as king as well in case something happens to me. It makes sense. We have presidents, vice presidents, if you want to call her that. Vice presidents, presidents, you know, we, we, we have people that are that in a line of succession that will back up someone if they die in office. I'm not declaring a prophecy. I don't know if that would be better or worse at this point, but God knows. So he, he makes his son Hezekiah, who ultimately becomes a good king, uh, sole monarch after three years. You might be saying, well, why would he do that? Hezekiah was of the anti-Assyria policy and, and, and party. It was a political move. Again, you, you choose political running mates based on their viewpoints, and specifically where they differ with you, it builds the strength of the ruling class. And It's a good reason to do it, I suppose. But nine years he ruled as co-regent with his son until he retired. Now, why did he retire? I don't know why he retired, but he did, and he spent his final four years in retirement with his son as ruling monarch, I suspect that what happened is people were so sickened by what happened with Assyria that they demanded that he leave office. And they wanted Hezekiah to become king. And he was in an untenable situation and was forced to resign. Again, not a prophecy, but if that's what God wants to do, I'm fine with that too. So... He left the kingdom significantly weaker than it was when he inherited it from his father, Jotham. Judah wasn't a sovereign kingdom at this point, not anymore. He wasn't a sovereign king. They had lost much of their wealth and their ability for foreign trade. They lost many of their people and much of their land. And he rested with his fathers in Sheol, waiting for God's coming judgment. But then he's buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings of Israel like his father. Because this man obviously had fallen out of favor. Look what he did to his kingdom. He single-handedly destroyed it with his own hands. 
And then Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, succeeded his father as king of Judah. We're going to spend about the next three weeks talking about good king Hezekiah. So there's the, if there's any hope in today's message, it isn't in Ahaz and his reign. It said it didn't last forever and that another king came into power and things turned around. In fact, we're going to see God supernaturally intervened to destroy the Assyrians when Hezekiah prayed for God to intervene at the insistence of Isaiah the prophet. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is, it's never too late to cry out to God and have him intervene in our lives, in our churches, and in our nation. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're so grateful that you give us hope, even in a story like this. And we do pray for those that we're ministering to, those children and young people in our church that will come of age in the next decade and make their own choices. We pray for each and every one of them that they would very early on make the right choices and not suffer for the wrong choices, that they would give their hearts to you and repent and live their lives for you. Lord, we can only give them the information they have to make the choice themselves. I pray for all of our parents that you would equip them with the supernatural ability to instill in them these truths and all of our Sunday school teachers and all of us who love them. May we not see even one Ahaz in this fellowship. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.